Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Well, we're going to go ahead and get into the service this morning. And, and it's kind of interesting. So, as I mentioned last week, if you were not here with us, there were some, there's some interesting things happening in Canada just to the north of us. As far as the Christian church goes, uh, there was a bill that was passed and, and now has come to law. That law is basically making it illegal to, one, evangelize, but also to, to the LGBT community, but also if you are a parent of a child who seems to be confused and misled to believe that they are part of the LGBT community, you could be arrested and imprisoned for between two to five years, depending on the information that you've given them. It also kind of makes uh, preachers stand out amongst uh, in, that, in that law. It's, it's directed towards uh, Christians, obviously, uh, that even if you preach God's word on the subject of whether it be LGBT or gender dysphoria, uh, gender confusion, whatever, what, whatever um, issue that that might come with it, if you speak out against it from the pulpit, you could you could be in prison for two to five years. Now, all throughout the United States today and Canada. Uh, the G3 organization that we are a part of, as well as MacArthur, John MacArthur's church, they are speaking specifically on this issue and declaring God's word as it is stated in the Bible on such issues. Now, we touched on it a little bit last week. We're going to be getting into it again this week, along with an additional uh, an, an additional message that is tied to it. So there will be some mature content in this. Uh, in this uh, sermon, um, it's not going to be as mature as last week because I feel like there's a a uh, a deeper message that we need to be that we need to hear this morning about this specific issue. So I was wondering how I was going to present this message to you this morning. I was wondering, you know, am I going to start in Genesis and talk about how man was created and how God created woman from man, and then they became one and they had children? Was I going to start in um, in Sodom and Gomorrah, speaking on, on that whole sexual immorality issue that God had? Uh, obviously, I mean, the only time that that hell rained down from heaven to destroy a town was right there in Sodom and Gomorrah. So I didn't quite know how I was how I was going to approach this, and I just started monologuing. I just started typing, and and uh, and this is what. I came to the conclusion. So last week we learned about church discipline, about how Jesus was the one that taught us about church discipline. And the truth is that wickedness is at our doorstep. Part one was wickedness within the church. Today is wickedness in the world. Now that's going to be a message of how do we stand as the church within the wickedness of the world. Now, unfortunately, there have been some of these ideas that I spoke in earlier that have seeped into the so-called church. Churches who, who, who have almost completely embraced these, these sinful acts, these things that, 
that the world is deeming completely natural and completely fine, completely safe. And it's not just the issue of LGBT, homosexuality, and transgenderism. There's a, a whole broad stroke of churches that have embraced sin altogether and making people feel safe in their sin. Now, the title of the sermon this morning is Wickedness Within the World. And you may think that, that this sermon is, all go is going to be all about beating up the world and judging the world and condemning the world. And if that is your assumption, you are mistaken. You see, as we will come to learn, a pastor's calling is not to the world, but to the church and the individuals within it. So despite the title, this sermon is actually directed towards you and me, the church. It's a challenge, and at the same time, it's an encouragement. Be encouraged, Christian, because God is a sovereign God. He is in complete control, and every molecule is His to make, break, or move. There is not a single event that... God was outsmarted or outwitted or taken by surprise. And brothers and sisters, this should bring you an immense amount of peace. Knowing that everything that has brought you to this point in your life now has happened for a reason. In fact, when I was a kid, my mom used to always say, everything happens for a reason, everything happens for a reason, to the point where I was a little annoyed with it. And so for a graduation gift, uh, she decided to get me a picture that says everything happens for a reason. And, uh, and I still have that today. Of course, I didn't hang it up then because I didn't really understand it. But everything has happened for a reason to, make you, to get you to where you are today. And if, if someone who's watching online is not here today, or maybe someone you love or someone you, don't, or someone you know is not, is, has not found Lord, the Lord Jesus to be the Lord of their life, their Savior, and, but maybe they, maybe they will, and everything that has happened has come to this point in time now where they will come to accept them, whether it be today, tomorrow, or years to come. Those who are His were His from the very beginning. Now, from the far reaches of an infinite heaven to the fiery depths of an eternal hell, and every speck of space in between bends to His will, however He so chooses. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He was before there was the beginning, and, and He will still be there after its end. Indeed, what a truly awesome God that we serve. I, I could exhaust myself to list all the wickedness of the world and, and what it's guilty of. And, and I'm sure all of us would be in agreement. Sin is sin. Whether it's homosexual issues, or it's lust issues, or it's, it's pride issues. Sin is sin. I feel like though that would be a rather pointless sermon, such as to give a sermon to preach about how grass is green or how water is wet. The world will always act like the world. It always has. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon writes, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. I'm sure in original Hebrew, Hebrew that doesn't rhyme, um, but it sounds cool when it does. 
Verse 10, is there anything in which one might say, see this, it is new, yet already it has existed for ages, which were before us. So you see, the, the very sin that this world has turned to, the very sin that tempts you and me even, the very sin that has tempted mankind since the beginning. It's, 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 it's always been there. Our temptations are no easier nor more difficult than the temptations of Adam and Eve. They fell, and we would have also. Our sin is no better than those who were within the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. As I mentioned earlier, the Lord destroyed both of those cities with brimstone and fire. And He would us also if our faith was not in Christ Jesus. Any man could say that he is, could any man say, any of you men out there today say that you would be above King David when seeing Bathsheba bathing would have the strength to look away and not pursue. Jesus made it clear that David committed adultery before he even sent his men to retrieve her. It was in his heart. And the most prominent sin that we see of women in Scripture is that of sexual immorality as well. In a world controlled by men, women quickly discovered how to abuse their ability, abused their ability to gain power through their bodies. We see that all throughout Scripture. And does that, that very same temptation not still exist today in our world for women to flaunt their bodies for some sort of emotional gain or boost to their self-esteem or self-worth. Brothers and sisters, mankind is just as depraved as it's always been. And just as King Solomon wrote, there is nothing new. However, I dare say this with caution as to not downplay the urgency of our mission here on this earth, no matter how wicked it is. So what do we do? How does the church continue being the church when it's surrounded by wickedness? A wickedness that is clawing and clamoring to get within the walls. Now we're a small church, but these are issues that every church has dealt with. Some may have even bowed to them to the, to these issues at the sake of not losing their membership not losing so-called butts in the seat so how are we to do this how do we remain the church this is what i intend to answer this morning but first let's get into our scripture reading of the day this will be 1 corinthians chapter 5 we're going to do the whole chapter but it's a short chapter if you would stand in honor of god's word we don't do this because it's a commandment or uh, tradition, we do it simply because it is honoring the, the, the Lord and His Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as not, does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in the Spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, 
and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ. Our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world, or the covetous, and swindlers, or with idolaters. Or then you would have to go out of this world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, or covetous, or idolater, or reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, do not even eat with such a one. For what, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? But, you do, but do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, as I mentioned earlier last week, we discussed the wickedness that has crept into the church all over the world. One of the most prevalent being the acceptance of sexual immorality. And the fact that there, there are churches who are... Um, the congregation, they have no idea what their pastors, what their leaders have embraced. They keep it hidden only to reveal these radical ideas slowly as to not disrupt the giving, as I mentioned earlier. Similar to a boiling frog in a pot of water. You toss him in when the water is already boiling and he will jump out immediately. However, if you put him in a pot of cool water and slowly bring it to a boil, the frog will never know that he's being boiled alive. And this is happening in churches all across the world, but especially here in the United States. They are fed heresy ever so slowly as to not cause alarm. And we learn that God's word is crystal clear on all of these issues. Yet the so-called church and the so-called brothers, as Paul put it, today they've either completely ignored these issues or have totally embraced them. Just as the Corinthian church did. Not just the man who is committing incest, is what it would be considered, but a multitude of immoralities, as we will read in later chapters, are being they were being tolerated and accepted. Now we covered verses 1 through 8 last week, which also gave us a clear understanding of church discipline and the importance of it. The idea that Paul would cast this man who claimed to be a Christian brother out to, into the world, into, into Satan's realm, to be destroyed is how, how Paul put it. Hoping and praying that this man would eventually hit rock bottom and see the error of his ways and return back to the church repentant. Now here, starting in verse 9, Paul makes a very subtle point to the Corinthians. And although he doesn't go into any detail here specifically, this point is echoed all throughout Scripture and is reinforced again and again. 
Let's look at verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter. Now you may... Let's pause there. You may be asking, wait. Isn't this the 1 Corinthians? Like, isn't this the first letter to the Corinthians? The first epistle from Paul to them? Well, actually, it's not. And this, is, this may come as a surprise to some of you. Uh, in fact, there are actually two letters that we don't have that we know Paul wrote to the Corinthians. The first one was mentioned here. The second one was referenced in 2 Corinthians. So, I mean, you might think, well, this is actually 2 Corinthians. The 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. But that's not the case. There is a letter that Paul references in 1 Corinthians, and we, we call it the lost epistle. And there's also that, that letter that I mentioned in 2 Corinthians, which is actually regarded as the severe letter. Now, this brings up some questions. You may ask, if, if, if we know that there are letters that are out there from Paul to the Corinthians, does that mean that there are other epistles um, that should be in our Bible? Uh, does it mean we're missing something? Are there letters out there that are missing? And the answer to all these questions is no. Yes, we, there, there are going to be some that we don't have, but whenever it comes to doctrinal, theological, inspired Word of God, the fact that we don't have those letters tells us everything we need to know. So there's no doubt that there are those solid doctrinal letters that were written from the apostles in that day. I mean, that was the only form of communication for them rather than face-to-face. -face. So as I mentioned to Michael on the phone when we were talking about this conversation, uh, I'm sure there's many, you know, Peter may have wrote to his mom. does not mean that it's, script, it's, it's uh, inspired for biblical use, for the, the growth and continuance of the church. So, don't get hung up on these little errors, or the, not errors, these little issues, because what we have is the inspired work of God, and this is what has continued for thousands of years. Um, so we can trust that. That's what's so comforting about the sovereignty of God. I, and I, I really, frankly, don't understand how anyone could be a Christian. How you could call, call yourself a Christian and not believe in the sovereignty of God. Meaning, meaning not, not that you are not a Christian, but how could any, why? Why would anyone want to be a Christian and believe in a God that doesn't have power? It, it is beyond me. It's a terrifying, a terrifying world that those people live in to believe that God doesn't know what He is doing. He isn't in control, but we are somehow the ones in control. Blows my mind. But I digress. Sorry about that. Um, I will stick to what Scripture says. So yes, there are letters that we, do ha we don't have, but the fact that we don't have them is the proof in the pudding that, that they are not the... They, however, you know, theologically sound they are, they are not the inspired documents that we, that we have today. So let's continue. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So in this letter that we don't have, Paul has addressed this issue before to these Corinthians. 
So what happened? Why is Paul having to address it again? Well, let's read on. Verse 10, I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world. Now, like we've learned last week, as well as all throughout our study of 1 Corinthians, the arrogance of the, uh, of the Corinthians out that when they thought Paul wrote to them, he was telling them to stay out of the world. They were amused with their own piety and amused with their own being. So, of course, they're going to declare quickly that they were holier than all those other unbelievers of Corinth and, and they didn't need to mingle among them. Thus leading them to cut ties with the unsaved world. Now, this is pretty problematic when you need to grow the church of Christ. When you need to grow, his, when, when, when Christ needs to grow his church, when you shut up your doors and you do not go out into the world and you don't associate with those who are immoral, how, how would anybody be saved? Now, let's look at verses 9 and 10 together. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world, or the covetous, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. For then you would have to go out of this world. Now this is that subtle part that I was telling you earlier. We have two reasons to be on this earth. The first is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if this is true for you, then following His commands are automatic. Your worship of the Lord should be evident in every part of your life while you grow and more and more in His likeness every day. That, that is the sanctification that we so frequently talk about. And if this is true for you, the second reason that we're here on earth should come as no surprise or or. Um, or uh, without any issues. It should be automatic as well. The second reason we are put on this earth is to share the gospel, to share it with all nations, with every person that we come in contact with. And as I said, if, this, if the first reason that we're here is true for you, then the second should come automatically. But Saul was, was telling the Corinthians, I need you in this world, while at the same time not being in the world so that you can declare as a witness that Christ came to save the world. And what is interesting is that Paul uh, is speaking from experience. Because one day, he thought about quitting, at least his, his ministry to the Jews. If you can, turn, to your, turn in your Bibles to Acts 18. Verses 5 through 11. Obviously, it's up here on the screen for you too. And in Acts chapter 18, we see something interesting happening. Paul, who had just witnessed some, some, a serious beatdown in all, in, in all honesty, um, he finally comes to Corinth, and, and this is what happens. Verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testing to the, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 6, But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. 
From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. See, he was done with them. And, and it would be so easy for us to dust our, our, uh, shake the dust off of our feet and say, golly, I'm done with this world. Look at how, how w- wicked and wretched it is. Well, the truth is that we're all pretty wicked and wretched too. But let's read on. Verse 7. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now this is the point that I'm, that I'm wanting to make. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, we know that the world is a wicked place. Water is wet. There's no, there's, I could preach a, a hours on the wickedness of the world. But God still has many people in these cities, just as he stated in Corinth. They're drowning in a pool of deception and their hearts are longing for the truth. You can see it on social media. They're longing for anything that can ground them, that can give them some security, some kind of solid foundation. They're seeking it out. These people are longing for it. And our brothers and sisters are right now out there who we don't know that they're our brothers and sisters. They don't even know that they're our brothers and sisters. But they do not have the peace of knowing our sovereign God yet. They're just waiting for someone who crosses their path and shares the gospel with them. You see, we are the pillar of truth as the church, and we must carry that truth with us everywhere we go. Because the souls of the lost depend on that truth. And to think that if we live in a world where Christians, are, they're afraid to share the gospel, they're afraid to share the truth, because they, it either makes a comfortable situation, or, or they don't even know it. They don't even know the gospel. Because it's not even preached in churches anymore. Well, it will be today, and it does in our church. Now, a few years ago, a video surfaced of a magician. His name is Penn Gillette. He's the taller one and the one who talks in the magician duo, Penn and Teller, if you're familiar. Penn just happens to be a staunch atheist. And he's written many books on the subject of atheism. But one night, he posted a video of himself that was quite profound, even by Christian standards. Penn started out the video by saying, after his show, he was standing in the lobby with a few fans. And a man who is last in line finally got to him. And he complimented his show, and then he stated this. I brought this for you. And he held out his hand, and in it was a small Bible. The man said to Penn, don't worry, I'm not crazy, 
I just wanted you to have this. And Gillette was so moved by this gesture of this man. And he recalled him in this, in this manner. He was kind, he was nice and sane, and he looked at me in the eyes and talked to me, and then he gave me this Bible. And this atheist, who blatantly rejected the idea of God, stated this, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect it at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? That means evangelize. How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Gillette continues, If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this, meaning eternal life, is much more important than that. And he says, this guy was a really good guy. He was polite, honest, and sane, and he cared enough about me to make an awkward situation to proselytize and give me a Bible. An atheist made that video for all the world to see. He was moved in such a way that it interrupted his night to share it from his platform. And there's no doubt that the man who gave Penn that Bible, he knew that Penn was an atheist. However, this didn't stop him from sharing what he believed. It didn't stop him from even possibly making a fool of himself, if that's what it came to, because he knew it to be true. This man had no idea how, how Penn would react. Would he be, berate him and belittle him? Would he laugh and make fun of him? Or would he have come to Christ? whether immediately or years later, by the heart that this man showed in sharing the gospel with him. And we can only pray that the Lord is continuing to work in this man's heart of stone. But there's one thing to be sure, that it wouldn't matter if Penn had pulled out a gun and shot the man because of the information that he was just giving him. It would have all been worth it a million times over. You see, we have no idea who will accept or reject the gospel that we bring to them. The gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at one of Jesus' parables, and he explains that parable uh, shortly after. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Specifically, this is, the, this is the parable of the wheat and tares. In verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the tares became evident. Also, the slaves of the landowner came to him 
and said, Sir, did you not sow good seeds in your, in your field? How then do, does it have tares? Continuing in verse 28, And then he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us to go and, and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them, but allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now we're going to skip ahead a few verses to verse 36 and 43, where Jesus explains this parable. Verse 36, Then he said, then, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the, are, are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of our Father who has ears. Let him hear. So where do we fit in in this parable? Who are we? We're the good seed. We are the sons of the kingdom. Church, it is not our job to decide who will or who will not receive the gospel because we cannot distinguish between the wheat and the tares. In fact, there are times when the wheat may be mistaken for tares and the opposite is quite true as well. We do not know whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life and often we tend to believe that Jesus his job is to, uh, now that he's ascended and he's in heaven, he just watches our lives like Santa Claus, making a list and checking it twice, adding and erasing names from his book. Let me tell you, if that was the case, he would have added and erased my name so many times there would be no paper left. Heavenly paper or not, it would not be able to withstand that amount of erasing, especially godly erasing. <laughs> Now, I make a joke, but there are truly Christians who believe this. They refuse to share the gospel because they don't even know where they're them, they themselves, whether they're in or not. This is a major problem. And if you are in that book of life, your name has been written on it since the beginning of time. And there's nothing that can remove your name from that book of life because you are His and we should act like it. Unless you don't believe it, then maybe it's time to speak with Pastor Michael or myself about your eternal destination. You see, brothers and sisters, 
That is what's so dangerous about hearing solid biblical teaching and preaching. This is what's dangerous about hearing the gospel. Because one day, each and every one of you will be held accountable for what you've heard and how you've responded to it. You see, if you share the gospel with a tear, they may not receive it. But Scripture is clear that they were never meant to. And Scripture is clear that whether they receive it or not, you will have received treasures in heaven for what you've done. And if you share the truth with wheat, the Lord will plant the seed of the Holy Spirit in them and their life will be forever changed and you will have earned treasures in heaven. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he wrote to them not to associate with immoral people. However, he did not mean the immoral people of the world for then they would have to go out of the world. No, the immoral people of this world need to hear the truth. And the only way they will hear it is if it comes from us. Pastor, teacher, congregant, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a preacher or a teacher to share the gospel with someone. Jesus, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Jesus is well aware of every issue that we face as Christians. Whether it was after He ascended into heaven in that, in that short time after, or if it's what we're dealing with today. He even prayed for us right before He was taken to be nailed on the cross. This is John chapter 17, verse 13 through 21. Verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have been given your your word and the word has hated them and I'm sorry the world. I have I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they, they, they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on the behalf of these alone, meaning the twelve that were with him then, but for all of those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our church has a purpose to stand on the truth and be sanctified in the truth and be the bearers of truth no matter what comes our way. The Scriptures are clear that homosexuality is a sin that leads to death and destruction. And as I said it last week, and I'll say it again, 
marriage and sex is defined by the Lord Almighty and Him alone. One husband, one wife, till death do they part. Anything else is an abomination in the sight of our holy God. Sex before marriage is also an abomination. And sex with yourself while watching sexual content is an abomination. And it's an abomination that not only our boys deal with anymore, but our, our, our young ladies are, are, are shown these things. And it's, it doesn't come from their mom and dads. It comes from their schools and their friends and the people who they are around. I was just speaking to a good friend before the sermon today, and he, he said something that I had known, but, but until he put it into words, I, I, I understood it much clearer. Children see things black and white. Black and white. If their friends are doing it, What's, what's wrong with it? If their friends are talking about it, what's wrong with it? And there's many things that happen and are said. And we all know, we've all been, been young before. We know that there are conversations that happen between friends that your mom and dad would never have known that you were having. We have to protect them. We have to protect these little ones. We have to protect ourselves. All of these sexual immoralities, they have no place in the life of a God-fearing Christian. We, we stumble, we fall. I mentioned last week, we are all on a razor's edge to go one way or the other. All it takes is the perfect storm to blow us off. And we have to understand that none of us, none of us are above this wretchedness that we see in the world. Our, our flesh crawl, cries out to it. Our flesh desires it. Our, our flesh loves it. Once we know this truth, it's easier for us to stand in truth whenever the temptation, the tempter comes and presents us something that looks nice and shiny, but will only lead to destruction. Repent of the sin in your life today, because we are not promised tomorrow. Now here's the difference between the church and the world when it comes to sin. We are convicted through the Holy Spirit. And, and we are broken whenever we sin because we know better. It breaks us. The world, however, they don't know better. They don't know better. They are fed lies from the father of lies. And they serve him and they live to serve him. They don't even know it. They don't even know what they're doing. Some of them will live this way for others. But what if there are those who will listen? What if there are those in a sea of death and destruction who will receive our message? We have to try. No matter what uncomforts it brings us, it could be, oh, I got my feelings hurt, or it could be, oh, I'm, I'm being marched off to death. We never know. I mean, if you were to share the gospel in, in Afghanistan, that would most likely be what it comes to. Don't think that that's not a reality here. It absolutely can be. Now, there's a movie 
There's a very heartbreaking scene in a movie. Titanic, actually. Uh, and I'm sure you all will remember this, this well. Titanic has completely sank within the depths of the sea. And all that remains now are the people thrashing and dying in frozen water. Some even drowning others in any attempt to keep their head above the water. And where once the sea was lit from a ship that kept them warm and dry is now in complete and utter darkness. And all that can be seen is blackness while the screams of what sounds like thousands of people in sheer agony fill the freezing air. While I'm sure it feels like a lifetime to those who are still alive, the wailing turns to moans and gasps for air while those who are left breathe their last breath. At last, the, the sea grows silent, and far off in the distance is a lonely light within the mist of the sea. Only a single lifeboat returns that heart-wrenching night, only to realize that as far as their eyes could see was death and despair. Yet they still sifted through the waters, looking for life, hoping to find just one, but one was not found. Not a sound was heard nor movement seen, and they began to grow hopeless, believing all was lost to the sea that dreadful night. Little did they know that the light that they bore caught the attention of one, just one. And they began to, as, as they began to turn the lifeboat around, a sound was heard, one lonely cry for help amongst a sea of death. And the only one, only one was saved that night. Brothers and sisters, we are that light bearer in a lifeboat that is the gospel of Jesus Christ floating in a frozen sea of death and despair. And if we share our gospel and yet only one is saved, the journey will have been worth it. Do not turn your lifeboat around, Christian. There are still many in the water. Now let's look back at our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's reread verse 9 uh, and, and 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world, for with the covet or, or with the covetous and the swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. And this is where we left off. Now these last three verses will be read together and will question will answer our question: how does the church continue? to be the church when it is surrounded by wickedness. Verse 11, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I, for what have I to do with, the judging, with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But for those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now this takes us 
full circle from what we have learned today back to what we learned in part one. We are to remove the unleavened within ourselves as well with the church so that we are to be a new lump. We are to be light bearers of the truth in this dark world. For anyone who seeks truth will see the light that we shine, which is His glory. And there will be few who truly come to know Him. The, wide, the gate is narrow, and it's hard to find. But it will be so very worth it when we put ourselves out there in the world. We will be persecuted for doing so. John the Baptist was beheaded for speaking out against sexual immorality, telling them to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Maybe we should do the same. See, Jesus was crucified for preaching repentance and the truth. Stephen was stoned for preaching the truth. James, the son of Zebedee, was stabbed and then beheaded for preaching the truth. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death for preaching the truth. Jude was filled with arrows for preaching the truth. Thomas was speared. Matthew was stabbed to death. Philip was hung upside down by hooks through his heels. Simon was crucified. Matthias was crucified. Andrew was crucified in the shape of an X. Peter was crucified upside down. Bartholomew was filleted alive and then beheaded. Paul was beheaded. John was the only one who died of a natural death. But it, he certainly endured persecution, intense persecution during his life. Why, brothers and sisters, should we expect anything different for ourselves? Now, you may be saying, whoa, Colton, I don't believe that that will happen in our lifetime. I believe in Jesus, but I would never want to die in any of these ways. What a horrible way to die which I would respond, what an honorable way to die. There is nothing more honorable that one could only wish for such an honorable death to be martyred as these men were. And what kind of message would that send for the generations of your family that you put your life on the line for Christ and died in doing so? For generations, for generations, your children and your children's children and their children would speak of the honorable way that their great, great, great grandfather or great mother, great grandmother put their life on the line for something they so truly believed. And besides, if you are not willing to lay your life down for your king the way your king laid his life down for you, you have much bigger problems in store than how you die. This is lordship. You've heard us talk about this before, but as time quickly approaches, we are seeing more and more persecutions of Christians, and it will be deemed right and just and good. And this is where the rubber hits the road. This will come the true test of faith. Because we in the United States have certainly lived a very easy life as Christians as opposed to the rest of the, the world. You can call me a sensationalist, 
that I am speaking this way for things to come, but this is a very real threat, whether you believe it or not. Don't believe me. Go look up just about any pastor on, on Facebook or on YouTube, and you will hear solid biblical pastors, I'd say, you will hear these messages preached. They sense it. Our time is coming. The Lord will be returning soon. Of course, he said he would return soon, and that was 2,000 years ago. But we're seeing everything come into play. Everything is as it was said it would, would happen. You can think of this time, this period that we're going through, as boot camp before you go off to war. Because war will come. And we have to decide when there's a knife to our throat or a gun to our head, will we continue to preach the truth? Will we continue to declare the truth? Will we continue to, be, to declare that we are followers of Jesus when that time comes? I pray, I pray that we'll all have the strength to endure. If you are a son of God or a daughter of God, that will happen. You will have incredible strength. We've heard stories of missionaries who have been held under excruciating uh, persecution and have died, but looked in their face, looked as though they were bearing no pain whatsoever. The Lord will give you that strength when that time comes. So with that, let this psalm be ingrained in your heart. Please turn in your Bibles. I don't have it on the screen. This was kind of an afterthought. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Verse 1. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who, who pursue me and deliver me. Or, hear, or, or, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, or if I had rewarded evil to my friends, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself to me and have you have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the people encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O Lord, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he, meaning God, will sharpen his sword. He has, he has bent his bow and has made it ready. And he has prepared for himself deadly weapons. 
He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness. And he conceits mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and I will sing praise in, to the name of the Lord Most High. Let's pray.